Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Sandra. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care Workshop, The Emerging Role of Immunotherapy in the Treatment of Lymphoma. Now, I have to say that this program has generated a great deal of interest. There are a lot of you on the call today. And this is a collaborative effort between the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care, and we have been working together on these programs over at least 20 years, and it's really a great pleasure to be working with the Lymphoma Research Foundation, um, and you'll be hearing later from uh, Peggy Interney um, at the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Um, we also have a number of other cancer-related organizations uh, on this program as well today who are helping to support and promote the program, but I have to say the Lymphoma Research Foundation has really taken the lead on this. Now, today's program is supported through unrestricted educational grants to the Lymphoma Research Foundation from Bristol-Myers-Squibb, Genentech, Juno Therapeutics, a Celgene company, and Merck and & Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, it's really made such a difference. Now, on the program today, we have over 969 participants, and I know some of you are still registering right as of this moment, and um, you should all know that the program occurs in real time, but if you miss that real-time program, it does it is available um, as a replay on the telephone or as a podcast. So not to despair. And those of you who listen to it live can also listen to it again. Um, so um, if you feel you missed something, you can actually listen to it as often as you wish. Um, and those programs run 24 hours a day. Now, we also have international participants from Argentina, Australia, Austria, Canada, France, India, Israel, Italy, Netherlands, the Philippines, Poland, Sweden, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a global call, really. This is a very global call. And it's a really credit to all of you that you've chosen to be on this program today. Um, and we have the very best speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Bruce Chesson. Dr. Chesson is professor of medicine, head of hematology and cellular, cellular therapy, Deputy Chief, Division of Hematology Oncology, Fellowship Program Director, Georgetown University Hospital, Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Chesson is going to be addressing an overview of lymphoma, immunotherapy as a treatment option for lymphoma, harnessing immune system, types of immunotherapy, and CAR T cell therapy. It's really my great honor and privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chesson. Thank you very much. Um, with a broad topic, over the next seven hours, I'll be uh, covering all those issues. Um, the, uh, there have been a number of treatment modalities for lymphoma over the years. There's been surgery where we sliced up patients, and there's been chemotherapy where we poison them, and radiation therapy where we fried them. And now we have immune therapies, therapies that involve substances um, that impact on our own body's immune system. They will stimulate it or sometimes suppress it and, as a result, uh, affect, hopefully, responses in the lymphoma. Now, the concept of immune therapy dates back centuries to uh, people like Edward Jenner, who dis he observed that milkmaids who got a mild viral disease, which was cowpox, didn't get the deadly disease, smallpox, and he started inoculating patients, people with cowpox, and prevented them from smallpox. So the concept of a vaccine is uh, a form of immunotherapy. Uh, one of the most commonly used immunotherapies is a monoclonal antibody, and the concept there dates back to the late 1800s when Paul Ehrlich came up with the concept of the magic bullet, which was specific for cancer cells and didn't bother the body's own uh, cells at all. And the immune system that we have it has a number of components. 
and they are the tonsils, the thymus glands in the chest, the spleen, the bone marrow, and a number of white blood cells that circulate in the bloodstream and the bone marrow. Now, there are basically two types of immunity that are impacted with immunotherapy. There is innate immunity, and that's what we're born with. We have cells called macrophages and neutrophils and dendritic cells and killer cells that all uh, that that come with us when we enter this world. But then there are other cells which are what are called adaptive immunity, which develop when we come in contact with some sort of stimulus, whether it be an infectious pathogen or whether it be uh, a cancer cell or the like. And any one of these, whether it be the innate immunity, which gives us a rapid response, or the adaptive immunity, a slower response, can be impacted by immunotherapy. And the, the, the active immunotherapies include things like vaccines and cellular therapies, where we administer something and we get a response. The passive ones are things like antibodies which and checkpoint inhibitors, which uh, we inject into patients. Um, the active ones benefit only those who respond, whereas the passive ones like antibodies and checkpoint inhibitors may impact all patients. Um, the duration of active immunotherapies such as vaccines and cellular therapies tends to be longer than antibodies and checkpoint inhibitors. But be that as it may, the monoclonal antibody, which was really the first clinically beneficial immunotherapy, drugs like rituximab or rituxan, uh, that many patients with lymphoma receive, particularly those with B-cell lymphomas, uh, have been around for years but have absolutely revolutionized how we manage patients with lymphoma, whether they're used as single agents or whether they're used in combination with either chemotherapy, a term called chemoimmunotherapy, or whether they're combined with other targeted drugs. They seem to improve the outcome that would have been associated with the other therapy. They make things better. And we have lots of antibodies, which can be either what's called a naked or unconjugated antibody, such as rituximab, which is used in follicular lymphoma, a large cell lymphoma, any B-cell lymphoma. We have um, modifications of monoclonal antibodies where they're hooked to toxins or poisons, which bring that directly to the tumor cell, bind to the tumor cell, and the poison is taken up specifically by that tumor cell. Those are called antibody drug conjugates. And we have radioimmunotherapy, where we bind the antibody to a radioisotope, which takes the radioactivity directly to the tumor. And there are a number of these drugs of each of these types already on the market. For example, a, uh, an antibody drug conjugate that is widely used is one called Brentuximab Vidotin or Adcetris, which uh, is one of the most active drugs for Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, and the radioimmunotherapeutic is Y90 Ibrutumumab Tioxetan, there's one for you, called Zevalin, not very widely used because it does carry a risk of secondary malignancies such as acute leukemia. And there are other modifications of antibodies, and these are very, very active drugs that are widely used in the treatment of lymphomas. And uh, whether it be single-arm studies or randomized studies, they really contribute to improvement of patient outcome. But a, a critically important observation was made that not all cells in the lymphoma are lymphoma cells. Not all the cells in the tumor are cancer cells. If you do various kinds of studies, you can see that some cells in a lymph node or bone marrow or what have you stain for proteins that are specific for lymphoma cells, but the majority of cells within a malignant lymph node are not malignant cells. They are immune cells. 
And the problem with these immune cells is that they appear to be ineffective. They're not working. Their job is to kill invaders, to kill microorganisms like viruses and bacteria and fungi. Or in this case, they're supposed to get rid of malignant cells when they appear, but they don't. They're sleeping. They're like someone fed them Ambien, and they're just hanging out there and doing nothing. And they've been either exhausted or they've been switched off or something, and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. An important observation was made that there is this uh, receptor called PD-1 on the surface of T cells, which are effector cells, which are uh, inflammatory cells in lymph nodes and bone marrow and elsewhere, and it has PDL1 on the tumor cell. And when PD1 links like a lock and a key with PDL1, it shuts off those inflammatory cells, and the tumor cells can thereby evade extinction or killing by the effector cells, the macrophages and the other things that are in the lymph nodes, etc. And now we have drugs called checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, you may have seen some of these advertised on television like nivolumab and pembrolizumab. And these drugs wake up those inflammatory cells that have been sleeping and allow them to do their job. And these are exceptionally effective drugs in diseases such as Hodgkin lymphoma, where a significant proportion of patients will respond even after they have failed to respond to other standard treatments like chemotherapy or uh, even a stem cell transplant. And these drugs are being combined uh, not only with chemotherapy in certain circumstances, but also with other biological agents. For example, the combination of a drug like nivolumab, the checkpoint inhibitor, is being combined with the brentuximab that I mentioned before. So you've got an antibody drug conjugate and you've got a, uh, a checkpoint inhibitor. And the combination is not chemotherapy, but is very effective. And it's these sorts of combinations that will help us get away from the use of chemotherapy, hopefully in the very near future. And there are more and more of these checkpoint inhibitors coming along, but they're not without their side effects. Since they stimulate the immune system, they stimulate immune effects and can result in inflammation in organs like the lung, the liver, the pancreas, uh, joints, etc., the skin, what have you. Um, we have uh, an, another interesting novel class of drugs that affect a signal on the tumor cells, which basically says, don't eat me. And all our body cells have this don't eat me protein on their surface, which is why uh, the cells in our body called macrophages don't gobble us up, but these are in greatest density on tumor cells such as lymphoma cells, and they prevent them from being eaten by cells that would normally clear them from the body. And there are now several drugs in development that block the don't eat me signal and allow for expression of the eat me signal and as a consequence, these drugs are in clinical trials and showing uh, nice responses in patients with lymphomas and other tumors and uh, are uh, another exciting form of immunotherapy. Now, the last one I was asked to mention is the one that seems to have engendered the greatest interest and enthusiasm, and that's the CAR T-cell, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell. This is a form of immunotherapy, and there, there are a number of variants of this that are on the market for lymphoma and for other malignancies, where you hook the patient up to sort of like taking blood from, it's called leukophoresis, where you basically take some of their lymphocytes. And you, in the laboratory, 
you introduce some sort of substance, whether it's a, a virus or RNA or some other thing, and it makes them a, attacking cells, killer cells, for something in the patient's own body. In most cases, it's CD19. They attack CD19, which is a protein on the surface of lymphoma cells. So you mix them with this vector in the, in the lab, and then you do something else that allows them to expand in numbers, to proliferate, and so they have lots and lots of these things. And eventually, you reinfuse them into the patient where they have sometimes an astonishing impact on the lymphoma. These uh, CAR T cells are approved for the treatment of a number of diseases, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. They're being studied for follicular lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, all sorts of types of lymphoma. The problems are, number one, they are incredibly expensive. This process can cost up to a million dollars. And they have some toxicities. Uh, they have what's called a cytokine release syndrome associated with fever, fatigue, hypotension, rapid heart uh, rate, nausea, etc. Um, and they may have a neurological toxicity, which can be very problematic with confusion, etc. But we are learning how to manage these toxicities. And the number of centers that offer this form of treatment is expanding greatly. And... Um, so since I'm running out of time here, I will close my part by saying that the immune system is a complex interaction of cells and other factors, and we have a number of agents that target specific parts of it. Combinations are in development, and they do have the potential to replace chemotherapy. Eventually, they'll have less toxicity and greater efficacy and will increase the potential for cure of patients of lymphoma with three seconds to go. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Chesson. That was really outstanding, and really, you really set the stage for the entire program today, and just excellent. Thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Karen Alice Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is Medical Director, Immune Effector Cell Therapy Program, Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Uh, um, Jacobson is going to be addressing immunotherapy clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, managing the side effects of immunotherapy, key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure and honor to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jacobson. Thank you so much, um, and uh, that was a really great overview of um, immunotherapy and, and types of immunotherapy and CAR T-cell therapy by Dr. Chesson, and really set the stage uh, to, for me to talk about um, where the field is going. So as a result of numerous clinical trials in a variety of different lymphomas, um, we now have several FDA-approved options um, uh, immunotherapeutic options for the treatment of lymphoma. Um, we have um, uh, the immune checkpoint blockade agents, as Dr. Chesson referenced, um, uh, pembrolizumab and nivolumab, which have been FDA approved for the treatment of relapse and refractory Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, and we also have CAR T-cell therapy for the treatment of relapse and refractory aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Um, and so, th you know, those FDA approvals are the result of, um, of clinical research that was done not too long ago. I think the, the lesson here is that um, these are the, these um, observations in the laboratory that led to these clinical trials um, were not so far from their from what uh, what eventually led to their FDA approval. The the pace of research and development, the pace of identifying drug targets, um, uh, immune drug targets. Um, as well as uh, clinical trial development and testing is actually qu is really quite advanced at this point. And in a very short amount of time, we've been able to see a number of drugs enter the clinic. Um, and these drugs have had ast astonishing efficacy um, for patients who have who previously didn't really have very many good treatment options. Um, the 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 where the field is moving now is figuring out how we can both expand. 
um, the breadth of uh, the use of these agents in other types of lymphoma, and also how we can improve their efficacy in the types of lymphoma for which they're already approved. Um, so when we think about um, uh, some of the immunotherapy agents that Dr. Chesson referred to, namely the checkpoint blockade inhibitors. Um, we know that they um, benefit Hodgkin lymphoma patients quite substantially, but there are still a subset of patients that will um, either relapse after an initial response or who will not respond uh, from the beginning. Um, and for these patients, we're exploring new combinations. Um, Dr. Chesson referenced combinations with um, the uh, drug brentuximab, which is an antibody drug conjugate against a protein on the Hodgkin lymphoma cell. Um, they're also being tested in combination with chemotherapy actually earlier in a patient's uh, chemotherapy uh, or treatment plan, so even in the upfront treatment of, of certain, uh, certain patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. There, there are also combinations with other checkpoint inhibitors. So, you know, these are drugs that target PD-1, which is a protein that's overexpressed on the Hodgkin lymphoma cell, but there are other there are other targets that we can uh, that we can use or inhibit or activate on the T cell to try to give the T cell even more of a push to try to attack uh, the malignant lymphoma cell. And these include drugs like ipilimumab, um, and then antibodies against other molecules on the T cell surface. Um, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, these immune checkpoint blockade drugs have, have had, didn't, haven't had as much success. There are some subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that also overexpress um, PD-L1, um, just like Hodgkin lymphoma cells do. And in these subtypes, uh, the, the single drugs by themselves do have great efficacy, and, um, but it could, again, be improved, and so combinations are being explored. But really, we don't know exactly why certain patients with other types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma um, don't respond to these drugs. And um, it's the result of, of um, clinical research where patients are treated with these these drugs and, you know, patient samples are obtained, biopsies of patients' tumors are ob obtained, where we can learn a little bit more about ways that the tumor um, can grow despite seeing these drugs. Um, and as a result of those studies, you know, new combinations are being developed to, to try to um, overcome that resistance to these therapies, and, and those are in clinical um, uh, trials right now. So we have clinical trials combining um, drugs that block this PD-1, PD-L1 interaction um, with other antibodies that can stimulate the immune system. Um, uh, including a drug called udamilumab um, and a drug called virilumab. Um, and then they're, they're also being combined with other drugs that, um, that have been FDA approved for the treatment of other lymphomas, including drugs like lenalidomide and abrutinib, which have activity on the immune system. Um, Dr. Chesson also referenced um, that we don't only need to use PD-1 uh, inhibitors as the backbone for these therapies. There are other there are other ways that our, our cancer, uh, the lymphoma cells evade the immune system, including by overexpressing this "don't eat me" molecule on their surface. And so there are clinical trials going on with these newer agents that block that interaction with the "don't eat me" molecule and cells of the immune system that are showing very promising activity. Um, getting, in, getting away from the immune checkpoint blockade agents, um, the field of CAR T-cell therapy has, has really exploded um, with the success that um, the, with the excess of CD19 CAR T-cell therapies in um, B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia and uh, aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, of course, uh, there's attention now being paid to other subtypes of CD19-positive B-cell lymphomas, and so these include indolent B-cell lymphomas like follicular lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma, as well as mantle cell lymphoma, um, and then not necessarily a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but CLL and SLL um, are also targets of ongoing clinical trials. Um, and just like it with the, the checkpoint blockade inhibitors, um, we want to figure out how we can make CAR T-cell therapy work better um, in the lymphomas that it's already approved for. Um, so going back to the aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, the existing CAR T-cells CAR that, that have been FDA approved um, already are now being tested um, in combination with other drugs that stimulate the immune system. So you can imagine if you give somebody 
their CAR T cells back. Um, those CAR T cells might work better um, if they have a little bit of an extra boost um, with a drug that can help stimulate them, um, or um, can work better if they don't see as many inhibitory signals from the tumor or the the environment around the tumor. Um, so these uh, so these agents are now being combined in combination with some of those checkpoint blockades that I had mentioned earlier um, that target uh, PD-1, PD-L1, um, as well as some of the other um, immunomodulatory molecules um, uh, throughout the immune system. Uh, there are trials uh, looking at the use of uh, immune checkpoint blockade following relapse after CAR T cell therapy to see if we can, you know, wake up some of those CAR T cells um, to be more effective again. And then there are um, uh, new constructs, new types of CAR T cells that are being developed. So uh, we've mentioned that the, most of the CAR T cells um, or the CAR T cells that are furthest along in development and that have been FDA, FDA approved are CAR T cells that target CD19, which is a protein on the surface of most B cell malignancies. Um, but there are other there are other antigens that can be targeted as well. Um, and so there are um, now CAR T cells that are in development that target more than one tumor antigen at a time. So in addition to targeting CD19, they also target a second tumor antigen such as CD20 or CD22. There are CAR T cells that are being engineered so that not only do the, does the CAR T cell bind to and hopefully uh, launch an immune response against a tumor cell once it's infused, but it also secretes um, a protein um, that will help stimulate the, the T cell itself to work better at killing the tumor cell. And those are what we call armored CARs, taking the pun of CAR um, even further. Um, and the last thing that um, the last the last really innovation that's uh, in clinical trials right now is thinking about um, whether there's a way that we can make these CAR T cells more available to patients. Whether we can um, whether you know right now the, the way they're manufactured is it, it can take three to four weeks to make someone's T cells, and that's a time when people's uh, lymphomas are growing and can be rate limiting for certain patients. Um, so wouldn't it be great if we had a CAR T cell that we stopped on the shelf just like we stocked a drug um, or, uh, in the pharmacy. And those are called off-the-shelf CAR T-cells, and they're actually made from donor, from donor volunteers' T-cells um, in such a way that they um, can be given safely back to patients, um, and they also can, uh, are engineered to target um, a tumor antigen on the lymphoma cell. And so there are clinical trials of these off-the-shelf CAR T-cells targeting CD19 um, that are in development. So the field is growing um, really exponentially. And I, you know, I expect we're, we're, I always tell people that we are at the um, end of the beginning. This is really the tip of the iceberg. And I think we're going to see a, a major, um, an ongoing revolution in the field of both uh, um, checkpoint blockade inhibition and immunotherapy, as well as engineering cell therapies. Um, but as Dr. Chesson had said earlier, you know, none of these drugs come without some side effects. Um, they're different than what is classically seen with chemotherapy and in, in many cases um, less frequent, um, but they are important. Um, so with the immune checkpoint blockade inhibitors, these are drugs that take the, you can think of them as taking the brakes off of your immune system. And, but they do it in a very nonspecific way. So not only are they taking the brakes off your immune system in order to fight a lymphoma cell, uh, but they're also taking the brakes off your immune system in general and making your immune system um, more activated, um, potentially by cells in your liver or cells in your lung or cells in your GI tract. And that can lead to inflammation of the lung, which we call pneumonitis, or inflammation of the liver, which we call hepatitis, or inflammation of the GI tract, which we call colitis. Um, and, and these are side effects that we can see in you know, 10 to 20% of patients, but are only really severe um, in a small minority of patients. Um, but when they happen, we, you know, we need to stop the drug and we need to treat patients with uh, corticosteroids. Um, uh, and usually it, it improves and, and um, reverses, and, um, with, and sometimes even patients can be rechallenged. But these are, these are important side effects uh, that we have to keep an eye on. Um, in, 
in addition, um, the, CAR T cell, the CAR T cells that we talked about have some very specific side effects that Dr. Chesson alluded to earlier. Um, and so these include cytokine release syndrome, which is uh, the result of this rapid expansion of these T, rapid expansion and activation of these T cells once they're infused and uh, responding to the to the tumor antigen. And these are the same. These are the same. This is the same response that you have when you have the flu. And so at its minimum, people get a, a flu-like illness where they can get high fevers, body aches, um, fatigue, headaches, but it, it's sort of a flu on steroids, and so it can get, much, the, the level of inflammation can get much more pronounced than that, and patients can develop low blood pressure, difficulty breathing, problems with their kidneys, problems with their heart, and sometimes they need to go to an intensive care unit. Um, and that's why, you know, only specialized centers at this point are giving CAR T-cell therapy and but although Dr. Chesson uh, had already mentioned that the number of patients, the number of centers that are specialized in this are, are rapidly expanding. There's a second side effect that um, can happen after CAR T cell therapy, and that's the neurologic toxicity. Um, and again, at its minimum, this can be mild confusion, but it, it can progress to be um, severe difficulty with language, both in speaking as well as understanding language, and even sometimes, um, uh, you know, uh, extreme sleepiness um, and an inability to, to, you know, to open one's eyes and interact with the world. Um, and this is a this is a side effect that we we're learning to we're learning the what's caught we we're learning what causes it, but we're we're not quite sure about the whole story at this point. And so, um, you know, we, we 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 get very we get very concerned for these patients. Although the vast majority will have a full neurologic recovery in time, um, the way we manage th these uh, side effects is with uh, drugs that can dampen down the immune response or the inflammatory response. So for cytokine release syndrome, we have, um, we have drugs that target some of the cytokines themselves, as well as corticosteroids, which uh, target the inflammation globally. Um, and for neurologic toxicity, we largely use uh, steroids. And so for most patients, you know, over 99% of patients these side effects are reversible, but they are harrowing, um, and they do require that a patient stay in the hospital when they experience them, um, and they do keep physicians on edge uh, to make sure that we're managing them effectively. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, doc as Dr. Chesson said, you know, we may be moving into a world where um, the some of these drugs are replacing chemotherapy because we are testing them now earlier and earlier lines of therapy. I didn't mention it, but we're also testing CAR T cells in earlier lines of therapy um, for patients who are at high risk for uh, not responding to subsequent lines of chemotherapy. Um, and so, I, you know, the, the balance then becomes, you know, is what is the efficacy benefit um, and at, at what expense in terms of toxicity? Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, you, when, you, when contemplating, um, you know, participating in uh, a clinical trial of immunotherapy or CAR T-cell therapy, you just have to listen, you know, listen to what your physician is uh, telling you about the potential side effects of the experimental therapy compared with the um, tr the treatments that you would otherwise uh, be eligible for and helping to make that decision. I think uh, in addition to the, um, I think some of the questions you need to ask are the relative likelihood of the side effects. I mean, you know, many patients experience some of the common side effects with chemotherapy, at the, you know, where fewer patients experience some of these side effects that I just went through. Um, and in addition, um, the question, there's another question about the duration of therapy. So some of these therapies, um, you know, could be potentially lifelong um, or, or uh, continued as long as a patient is responding, and some of them are time limited. And you know, that obviously has implications for patients, uh, for quality of life of patients as well. So those are all important questions. But I can't, I can't um, emphasize enough that this field has moved very, very quickly in the past five to ten years. Um, and as a result, and it's the result of clinical, it's a laboratory research and clinical research that, that brings uh, uh, patient samples back to the lab, so we can learn how to deliver better clinical um, treatments and clinical op uh, options back to the clinic. So it's because of it's because of. Um, 
these research studies that are on, that have ha that have been completed and that are ongoing that this field has moved so quickly and been able to uh, really change the way we think about cancer therapeutics. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that was really outstanding, um, Dr. Jacobson, just an outstanding presentation and, um, again, uh, invaluable information for everybody on the call, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Peggy Ann Turney, and Ms. Turney is Chief Strategies, Communications, and Engagement Officer with Lymphoma Research Foundation. She is really the architect of today's program and the Lymphoma Research Foundation as well. And she'll be addressing the Lymphoma Research Foundation's free programs and, and conferences. Many of you may know of them, but she will go into much more detail about every all the programs that they offer. It's my great pleasure now and honor to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Peggy Ann Turney. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, and, and thank you to Cancer Care for your continued partnership. I'd also like to thank our esteemed faculty, uh, Dr. Chesson and Dr. Jacobson, for sharing your time and expertise with us today, and really for all that you do for the entire lymphoma community. As Carolyn mentioned earlier, I would also like to acknowledge our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, Juno Therapeutics, and Celgene Company, and Merck, whose support has made today's call possible. Most importantly, though, I would like to thank each of you for joining us on today's teleconference. If you have any questions about the information you learned today, I want you to know that the Lymphoma Research Foundation is here for you. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest nonprofit that is dedicated exclusively to lymphoma, and our mission is to eradicate this disease and serve those touched by it. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is committed to advancing our understanding of lymphoma so that we can ultimately find cures. Our scientific advisory board, which is comprised of 45 of the world's leaders in lymphoma, guides our investment in research. And to date, we have funded more than $60 million in lymphoma-specific research. LRF also offers a variety of educational resources so that you can access information in whatever way you may learn best. Whether you're newly diagnosed or seeking help with long-term survivorship, LRF is here for you. The Foundation provides comprehensive, disease-specific, and treatment-specific resources, programs, and services, all of which are offered free of charge and have been reviewed by lymphoma experts. Most relevant to today's call, LRF offers a variety of immunotherapy resources. Our Lymphoma Helpline can answer your specific questions about immunotherapy, and whether it may be a treatment option for you. Our professionally trained staff members can run individualized clinical trial searches for you related to immunotherapy and provide you with a list of questions to take back to your healthcare team regarding this treatment option. We also have a dedicated fact sheet and video on immunotherapy, both of which can be found on our website, lymphoma.org. We offer dedicated sessions on immunotherapy at our in-person education programs. In fact, our largest and most comprehensive program, the North American Educational Forum on Lymphoma, which will be held in Manhattan Beach, California from October 12th to the 14th, will feature two immunotherapy sessions, one with Dr. Chesson and the other with Dr. Jacobson. I would encourage everyone to learn more about and register for this education program on our website at lymphoma.org slash edforum or by calling our helpline at one 800 500-9976. Last, but certainly not least, for those of you looking to give back and get more involved, I would encourage you to join Team LRF. We offer a variety of walks and rides for you to participate in, or you can turn your talents and passions into ways to raise funds for lymphoma research. In fact, our research ride, which was founded by Dr. Chesson and has raised more than $5.5 million for lymphoma research under his leadership, is taking place on Sunday, September 23rd in Montgomery County, Maryland. I would encourage you to visit our website, support.lymphoma.org slash research ride to learn more and participate in this wonderful event. I really hope that you will take advantage of some of the great resources and services that the Lymphoma Research provides. If there's one thing that you take away from today's program, please know that the Lymphoma Research Foundation is here for you. Whether you have questions regarding what you learned today about immunotherapy or need information about your specific type of lymphoma, 
you can reach out to the Lymphoma Research Foundation through our website at lymphoma.org or by calling our helpline at 1-800-500-9976. Again, thank you all so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Natri. That was really wonderful, and it's a wonderful resource for everybody on the call today. Please do take advantage of it. And I do want to say just say a few words about Cancer Care Services before we go into the Q&A. Um, cancer Care is staffed by oncology social workers. We're a national program, and we offer um, really a variety of services to help you just with the day-to-day coping um, with a cancer. We have financial and practical assistance. Um, we also have a copay foundation. We offer online support groups on a number of above 120 of them, so on many different topics and areas of interest to you. We have programs for all um, ages. So we help people, both children and teens, young adults, middle-aged persons, older adults, um, the whole scan of the population that we help. Um, and um, we also do programs like this. Um, um, these educational workshops, we have publications, and we also do have a, a new thing, a meditation app, which many of you find very helpful. So we do encourage you to take advantage of that as well. And now we do have time for questions, and we're going to move right on to questions. And I'm going to um, ask um, uh, uh, Sandra to go ahead and explain to you how to queue up for questions. Some of you have already done this, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your questions, then we will, um, I'll give you some uh, good references in terms of how to get your questions answered. So, uh, Sandra? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from the line of Ron R. Your line is now open. Hi, uh, thank you very much for a very informative uh, lecture. Uh, I have a question about infusion protocol. I'm wondering, uh, of course this is evolving, but with the uh, rituximab, you might for, for years have a cycle of three or four infusions once a week, and this a couple times a year. So far with CAR-T, uh, is the same type of protocol being used, or is it maybe just one infusion or some other pattern? Thank you for that question, Ron. Um, Dr. Chesson, do you want to address that to start with? Well, I think that's better for Dr. Jacobson. Okay, Dr. Jacobson then. Um, so the CAR, t- the CAR T cell therapy right now is a single treatment, so it's a single infusion. Um, the cells are, as we said earlier, the cells are collected and, and sent to a laboratory where, where they're engineered um, to express that receptor on their surface that recognizes the tumor antigen. And then when they come back uh, to the treating center, uh, the patient is given three days of gentle chemotherapy with the purpose of um, making the patient a better host to allow for um, the T cells to grow and expand in once they're infused. And then the infusion happens. It's, it's a single infusion. It, it actually takes 15 minutes. It's, uh, it's literally a bag that's sometimes the size of a postage stamp. It's very, very small. Um, it's sort of incredible that that tiny infusion over that short amount of time can have this big impact. Um, but it is a living drug that, once infused, um, goes on to expand over days to weeks um, and persists for a long time. So it, it enacts its effects for an extended period of time as opposed to some of the other drugs we give to patients that need to be redosed at regular intervals. Excellent. Uh, next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Michael H. Your line is open. Yes. Hi. My name is Michael. Um, one thing I noticed by its absence in your presentations is nothing about T-cell lymphomas, non-Hodgkin T-cell lymphomas. And do you have any information on advancements in these kinds of immunotherapies in that area? Sure. Thank you for that um, question. Yeah. Dr. Chesson, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, T-cell lymphomas are quite uncommon. They are maybe 10% of all the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Uh, but there have been some advances made in the immunotherapy of T-cell lymphomas as well. Um, there is the brentuximabidotin that I mentioned earlier, the etcetras, which uh, is also approved for a form of T-cell lymphoma called anaplastic large-cell lymphoma, where it's probably the single most effective drug for that disorder. It also is effective in other forms of T-cell lymphoma that express the CD30 protein 
on their surface, and uh, which includes some cutaneous T-cell lymphomas and others. And uh, of interest is that there was a recent study in which that drug is being combined with chemotherapy and compared to chemotherapy alone, the results of which have not yet been published or presented, but um, we're hoping that this will be a major advance for patients with T-cell lymphomas. Recently, there was uh, another drug approved by the FDA called mogulizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody uh, developed initially in Japan, but which is effective in uh, particularly cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, uh, for which it was approved, and also uh, other forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. There are some CAR T-cells that are also being developed against T-cell lymphomas, uh, but because of the rarity of the condition, the progress has been uh, somewhat slower, uh, but it's not for lack of interest. Um, It's just been a bit more challenging. Uh, You know, we've had rituximab, uh, since, uh, you know, for decades for B-cell lymphomas, and we haven't been able to find that kind of drug until recently for the T-cell lymphomas. And uh, as I said, we do have a number of drugs, and there are more of them in development as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for um, Dr. Jacobson on front of our online participants. Um, so um, as CAR-T trials proliferate, um, what should the patient consider in choosing a facility, assuming they can relocate? Are the odds of success independent of doctor and facility, or do variables like size or number of previous trial patients influence results? That's a really great question. Um, and I, I, I it's, it's not one that, it's one that I would struggle to answer. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the choices, if you're able to relocate, are are large. Um, I think that um, uh, you know there there are a number of centers that have been involved in this um, sort of from the ground floor and have participated in a lot of the early phase clinical trial, trials and and probably have the most experience both in managing the the side effects as well as in um, establishing the infrastructure um, to to treat a large number of CAR T-cell patients, you know, without delay, which is an important factor when considering where to go for treatment. Um, And um, uh, those those, those centers are also, you know, actively engaged in, you know, the the cutting edge and future clinical trials. So um, I think that... um, you know, I think finding finding a center that um, has been involved from the beginning um, has a large program, has a lot of experience uh, administering CAR T cells, uh, you know, across uh, diseases, um, and that it has an active clinical research program would would be a, a good place to start. Um, I know the Lymphoma Research Foundation and other foundations um, provide guidance. Um, uh, for this, you know, I know that they were instrumental in trying to find clinical trial spots for patients before we had FDA-approved um, therapies. So that's another place to go to get some some help and guidance in, in choosing a center uh, to visit uh, for consultation for CAR T cell therapy. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's excellent. Um, and we have another question for you, um, Dr. Jacobson. Um, so how frequent is neuropathy, a side effect from your immunotherapy? Uh, um, also, are there suggestions for relieving the side effects while on therapy. So uh, uh, neuropathy was the question? Yes, neuropathy, yes. Um, so, for CAR T cell, so CAR T cell therapy, um, if, if that's what we're talking about in particular, um, neuropathy is not a predominant side effect of CAR T cell therapy. So there's neurologic toxicity, which, you know, the most most common manifestations of that are actually more cognitive um, and um, uh, uh, cognitive and, and sort of level of arousal. So more more um, relating to sort of the functioning of the brain um, as opposed to you know sensory nerves that go to the hands and feet. Um, there, you know, there have been rare instances where patients have had um, isolated muscle weak, you know, muscle weakness or sensory issues related to the CAR T cell therapy, which have been reversible. Um, 
but those are those are really extremely rare, um, and that's you know neuropathy is not a prominent symptom um, of CAR T cell therapy. Excellent. Um, and um, I'm going to I'm going to ask this question uh, to Dr. Chesson. Um, um, uh, is there a an age cutoff for receiving CAR T? Uh, if I can go back to the last one first, and that is there are other immunotherapeutics that do have neuropathy as a complication, notably the antibody drug conjugates, um, the etcetras and some of the new ones in development do have neuropathy and it occurs in at least half the patients, but in the majority it is reversible. As far as CAR T-cell <clears throat> uh, age cutoff, it's more of a biological an organic age cutoff. Uh, patients need to be of relatively good performance status. Uh, they need to have reasonable organ function, uh, particularly cardiac. Um, so it's not specifically an age, but uh, different institutions have different age cutoffs, but it's, it's more of your performance status, which is how well you function in everyday life, strength and organ functions, and that sort of thing, uh, just as it is for stem cell transplant, where it's more of a, uh, a biological than a chronological age cutoff. Excellent. And our next telephone question, um, Sandra? Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Denise M. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, reported in the media, there have been a number of uh, cases involving patients undergoing CAR T-cell um, who have uh, died in the middle of the process or ended up with uh, severe neurological uh, side effects that have been referenced. Um, I assume that the reasons uh, may be very complicated and not explained in the media. Uh, instead, the media has sort of suggested it's a crapshoot. You go in for this therapy and you don't know um, uh, what's going to befall you. And so I'd like to ask Dr. Chesson, are you able to identify individuals in advance uh, that may not survive the treatment or have severe therapy or side effects? Um, and if not, when do you expect to be able to uh, have that ability? Well, thank right. you for that um, question. It's a complicated question, Dr. Chesson. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, you don't want to go into something that you may not come out of. Uh, I alluded to some of that previously, and that is, um, for example, I had a patient just this week who was initially not considered a candidate for it because he had had to have a cardiac ablation in January. And uh, the concern was, would this reactivate uh, that problem? And we waited another eight or nine months and uh, with some intervening therapies. And he did well, and he just got his CAR T cells uh, on Monday and did well. So I, I think it's um, if you if you fulfill the eligibility criteria regarding organ function, um, performance status, et cetera, and having reasonably normal uh, lab tests, then that's reasonable. Um, the other issue I, w I was going to say is what? Oh, the mind is a terrible thing to lose. Um, I forget what I was going to say about I imagine it's always some issue of um, just to, if, I don't know if this will help at all, Dr. Chesson, but I, I'm assuming that with all of those things in place that occasionally things happen that one doesn't expect. Oh, yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, well, some, some of these deaths uh, occurred early in the development of the, of the technology um, when we were still learning how to manage cytokine release syndrome and the hypotension and the fevers uh, still learning how to manage patients with a macrophage activation syndrome and tumor lysis syndrome. Now we know uh, what to expect and how to manage them. We have drugs now that manage the cytokine release syndrome rather effectively. And most of the toxicities, with the exception of the neurological toxicity, the central nervous system toxicity, we can now manage with uh, relative ease. Um, compared to what it was. So the deaths tended to occur early on. There is a real learning curve here, as there is with uh, with most of these new biological therapies, even the checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, there's a whole menu of toxicities we're learning how to deal with. 
um, deaths from, if you carefully select patients who are in reasonably good shape and, and an experienced center, as Dr. Jacobson mentioned, then the risk of uh, not surviving the procedure is, is relatively low. Thank you. And Dr. Jacobson, do you want anything? Or? Uh, I, I want to echo the um, the fact that the learning curve for these studies has um, improved quite dramatically, or these therapies has improved quite dramatically, um, and that uh, I think a lot of hesitancy early on with CAR T-cell therapies is that we didn't know what would happen if we dampened down the, infl in the inflammatory response, and if we gave patients steroids or um, drugs that uh, block the effects of some of these cytokines. Um, we were concerned that we would, you know, impact the the efficacy of these of these T cells themselves, um, and patients wouldn't wouldn't do as well, um, which was the point of going through the therapy to begin with. But as we've learned, um, these uh, sort of gentle ways to dampen down this robust immune response um, are not don't seem to be impacting the efficacy, and so we're using these therapies much earlier um, in a patient's course after CAR T-cell therapy, which has helped to um, prevent some of the more severe side effects and help, uh, helped make um, these side effects much more reversible um, and patients recover more quickly. Um, overall, though, if you think about the number of patients who have been treated with CAR T-cell therapies, the um the the risk of dying as a side effect of these therapies is still in the single digits which is not um not, which is not terribly dissimilar from some of the other things that we have been doing for for decades in lymphoma therapy so um it's it got a lot of press um for for good reason and it definitely and as i said it's it's humbling to take care of patients um especially when um they develop some of these side effects but um it, you know i think it, it all has to be put into context of what our existing therapies are um, and what the side effects of those therapies can be. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and there is an excellent question here um, in terms of the, um, the number of um, sites that are now um, uh, certified to provide CAR-T cell therapy. Um, Dr. Um, Jacobson, do you want to address that? How many sites are currently certified to administer CAR-T cell therapy? Yep. Um, so it's different for the. So there are two FDA-approved therapies right now. There's um, axicaptogene sololucil, which is uh, also called Yescarda, um, and then there's um, tisocentesis. Uh, there's uh, T-cell, which is the Novartis product, um, and each uh, center, each company has um, certified a different number of sites. Um, I believe uh, both centers are approaching, both uh, companies are approaching somewhere between 100 and 150 sites that are uh, certified to administer uh, their products in, in the commercial setting, so in the, for the FDA-approved indications, um, and the number of um, centers that are and those are very similar to the number of centers that are participating in one or multiple different clinical trials for different companies. Well, I actually want to thank all of our speakers who've been extraordinary. I also want to thank all of our participants for asking such wonderful questions, which really, um, really enhanced the program today. And I want to also thank Obama Research Foundation, and particularly uh, Peggy Attorney, for really uh, making this program possible. Um, and uh, now I did say that I would be addressing those of you who they still have questions because I do know there are many more questions in queue. So I do want to actually be sure to get to those concerns. So I know many of you do have questions still. We didn't get to all your questions. There, is some, there are so many of you on the call today, which is a good thing. But nevertheless, you do still have questions. So of course, we always suggest that you go back to your treating healthcare team. They are, of course, um, they know you best. They actually um, have lots to offer. But I know that you often like to go to other places to get information as well. And I can think of no better place to go than the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And you have their website, www.lymphoma.org, and their um, helpline, 1-800-500-9976. And you will be receiving all of this information. You'll be getting an evaluation at the end of today's program. And in the evaluation, um, you'll not only be getting, we will be asking you what you think of the program. That's really important to get that feedback because we're planning more programs and we, your feedback is essential. Um, you know, we're now um, kind of uh, entering a period when we're planning a whole bunch of programs for the fall and even for the winter, so um, that your feedback is very important. 
and also um, it also will include though all the um, resources that we offered during the program today. Any resource information will be there for you, um, and um, so you'll have that as well. Um, and um, I also just want to mention that we are offering a program, a, a whole program, just on CAR T cell therapy for people living with lymphoma on November 16th. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of that program. Um, uh, I know that many of you have signed up for this program and also signed up for that one, and that is also being done in conjunction with the Lymphoma Research Foundation. So that's a, a great opportunity for a continuation of this program. So um, if you And you'll be getting a whole calendar of upcoming programs as well. But most importantly, as we conclude our program today, we and I do not want any of you to think that you're alone in coping with lymphoma and coping with any of your questions or concerns. Um, we're all out there really to help you. Um, and you'll be getting, of course, all of your information, but you have the Lymphoma Research Foundation. You have Cancer Care. We partner together because we do offer um, um, services that are free and that really can help you in coping. And they can be often helpful to you. And um, you can use all of our services and all the other organization services as you need them. There is no limit on your ability to access these services. And, I, and for those of you who are particularly coping with any particular stress or concerns, I do want to just recommend our meditation app because it's new and it's people have really been enjoying it very much. And you can just go to the Cancer Care website, www.cancercare.org, and it's there, and you can just click on it and uh, see if you'd be interested. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. This has been an extraordinary program, extraordinary in terms of the number of you who have been participating today in the program, and also extraordinary in the sense that we've had such amazing speakers and, um, and, and such a global reach to the program as well, both in the, all the people in the U.S. and the United States, actually, from all different parts, as well as internationally. So thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.